Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who are either in person or online, uh, I'm Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Eaglemont. I'm excited to be able to share God's word this morning. Uh, over the last number of weeks, we've been going through a series through the book of Galatians. We took a break last weekend uh, for our Faith Expansion Sunday, but we're going to jump right back in this morning. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, whether it's on your phone or you have a paper copy, open it up and go to the book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament. We're going to be going to chapter 3 and picking up from where we left off. So going to uh, verse 15 is where we're going to start in Galatians chapter 3. Thank you, Pastor Jaden, for doing the announcements and the pre-announcements. It's always awkward when you have to introduce your own self on a video, but we've had a little bit of illness going through the staff this week, so Jaden was willing to uh, pitch in and do both. No, she's not vain and just enjoys introducing herself. She was just pitching in, so way to go, Jaden. Let's jump in. Verse 15, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to talk about promise versus performance. So we're going to go section by section here. It starts like this. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Okay, let's stop here. Here's an example of what? So we need to connect back to what we discussed two weeks ago. Pastor Brennan spoke on the previous passage here in Galatians. And he talked about here how Paul unpacked that we are not saved by our works or our good deeds, but we're saved by faith, by grace, through the cross of Jesus. Now, if you have been around for the last number of weeks, already going through the book of Galatians, you maybe already are saying to yourself, This is kind of repetitive. I think Paul kind of forgets he already said this. I know that that tends to be what we look at when we think of repetition. Either someone's forgetful, or maybe it can be like sometimes when couples fight, they end up saying the same argument and the same thing over and over again. Maybe Paul's just really angry, but that's not actually what's happening here. Paul is being repetitive, and the book of Galatians repeats a lot of phrases and a lot of points over and over again. This is done intentionally. Uh, you see, in, in, the language, in the ancient languages that Paul would have been familiar with, this was actually a technique. The Hebrew language, for example, has about 7,000 words. Ancient Greek, which is what this book would have been written in, but Paul would have been referring to a lot of Hebrew from the Old Testament. Ancient Greek, from 7,000, it goes to 66,000 words in the vocabulary. Now compare that with modern-day English, which actually has more than a million words. Now, a lot of those are archaic words that we don't really use in common vernacular anymore. But even with just common vernacular, according to the Oxford Dictionary, there's over 171,000 words in the English vocabulary. So that means there's a lot more to be able to express and to uh, give nuance. But Paul here is using an ancient literary technique of doubling and even tripling down on his teaching that we are not saved by works but by faith to point out how important. The repetition is essentially saying this is important, this is important, this is really important. So, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. 
Now, in case you're not familiar with the term irrevocable agreement, what he's saying here is a last will or testament. You can't change someone's will after they pass. It's already there. You can't change what's already been done. Moving on to verse 16. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. Now, let's just stop on this word promise because it's a key word throughout this section of Galatians. In fact, the word promise or promises is used 10 times just in the verses that we're going to be covering this morning. So what is the promise? For those of you who are in church, maybe you you have an idea, a grasping, but I want us to unpack this. What's the promise? It's speaking about a covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. Now, Abraham did not make a covenant with God. God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see sin. Sin enters the world because of the choice of mankind. And sin tainted our world and separated us from God. And so God promised Abraham, a man that came in the Old Testament, that through his child, his children, he would restore right relationship or blessing, allowing people to once again be freed from destruction of sin and able to live freely with God. Genesis 12, 1-3, we see this. As the Lord said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your family's fa- or your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Paul goes on to expand on this in Galatians earlier in a passage that we've studied. In Galatians 3, 6-9, in the same way Abraham believed God and God counted it him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, the children, the people who received the promise God gave that he would restore right relationship again. That the distance, the brokenness, the death and destruction of sin would be restored and repaired. Those children are not the ones who are simply biologic, but they are ones who received it through faith. Not through their works, not through following the Jewish customs, which was the issue that this church was facing. Again, just to give a little bit of history, if you've missed the earlier weeks... In this church, there were those people who were called Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians, but they were people who still believed that you had to follow all the Jewish customs. And they put a weight on the Jewish religion and the Jewish practices, believing that those practices somehow attained God's favor and right standing with him. Paul is saying, no, it's 100% only through faith. God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. Verse 16, or uh, continue on in verse 16, it says, And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as in multiple, as if many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, singularly. And that, of course, means Christ. So, why would it say to his child? Why would it be about Jesus? God is not talking about Abraham's biological child, simply, although he's talking about the biological line of Abraham. 
He's not simply speaking of all the descendants of Abraham, but of one singular seed, Jesus. Now, for some, this might be confusing because you go through and you go, Jesus, I know a little bit about the Bible and Jesus doesn't show up for another 2,000 years. Genesis 3.15, after sin and the fall of mankind, God states that there will be conflict in the world between Satan's seed, which is sin that's come into the world and tainted it, and the seed of the woman, meaning a line that would come through mankind, a promised child. God's children would ultimately produce God's son. See, sin, when it came in, it changed everything. The perfection God had made in creation was no longer perfect. We tainted it. But God had a remedy and made a promise. Jesus was in the plan and part of the plan, not as a contingency that came later, but from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Over 2,000 years before Jesus' earthly birth, God already promised his seed, Jesus, coming to Abraham. Again, Jesus wasn't the backup plan. In fact, you can rewind it all the way to the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, 23, we see God speaking. Now, this is before anything else is created, any other living being is created, and these are the words of God. Let us create mankind in our, plural, image. That's because God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father God the Son, Jesus, who was present from the very beginning of time and was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Okay, so here's the thing that blows me away. Because I often think, okay, God chose to give his Son because we messed things up and then it was either he had to scrap it all or to save it, then he had to come up with this plan of Jesus coming to save us from our stuff. And there is truth to that. But it's even bigger than that. Because God made you and me, he made us with free will so that we could choose to love or choose not to love, to choose to follow or to choose not to follow him. That's how much he loved us and desired for us to be in loving relationship with us. He made that platform from the very beginning, knowing not just that it could, but that we would sin. Jesus wasn't the backup plan. He was the plan all the way along. God chose to go through the heartbreak of you breaking his heart, of you going against him, of him having to carry the sin of this world and see the destruction that would come and have to give his own son and see his own son die on the cross. And he chose that because he so desires you and me to know him truly in fullness, in loving relationship. That's mind-blowing love. That's the seed that was promised to Abraham. Moving on in this portion of scripture, we're just going to keep going section by section, if you can stay with me this morning. Verse 17. You're like, that took like 11 minutes to do two verses? We're going to be here all day. Yes, you are. Sorry. All right, verse 17, here we go. So this is what I'm trying to say. 
The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. The law, Ten Commandments, all the rules, okay? This, that came after the promise to, Mo, to Abraham. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could have been received by the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Essentially saying the promise came first and the law came second. The promise takes precedence. It has legal precedence. I was reading a story about a man in Surrey, which is the city I grew up in, Surrey, British Columbia, which is usually if there's a story in the paper on the national news for Surrey, it's always crime, always. Like we just have a bad reputation. And this is no extension. So there is a story of a man who actually sold his home he ran into financial difficulty, and he had debts to pay, so he had to sell his home. This was back in 2019. Sold his home, uh, and sold it below the value of what he needed, but he had to sell it quick because he had debts he needed to pay. However, in the time that it was taking to close the sale, he found another buyer. He had already signed and sold the property, but found another buyer who was willing to pay 30000 more than what he had originally sold it for. So he somehow managed to sell it again, and sold it to the second person for 30000 more, which would allow him to pay off his debts. Well, what do you think happened in the courts? They honored the first buyer, of course. Why? Because it had the legal precedence because it was the first sale. It's what held account. That's what Paul is saying here. The promise to Abraham came first. It has more power. It has the legal precedence, not the law. The promise or the covenant of God predates the giving of the law of Moses. When you add the time passed between the promise to Abraham and the law given to Moses, and then add the time between the law of Moses and the earthly life of Jesus, that's over 2,000 years. Over 2,000 years for God to complete that promise that he gave. A couple important notes I quickly want to take as a, a side trail on that. 2,000 years. Can we take this as a reminder? God uses a different timetable than us. Maybe you're like me and you get impatient. It took 2,000 years for Abraham's promise from God to come to fruition. Number two, God does not break his promises. He does not and he cannot contradict himself. The Bible teaches that God is himself the essence of truth and integrity. It is inherent in his nature. So if you are waiting on a promise from God, don't let time convince you he's forgotten. God is true to his promise. Yours and my trust issues with God have to do with wounding in our own lives. And that can lead us to struggle to believe and to trust anyone. But we need to take the words of Psalm 34, 8 seriously. Taste and see, experience, know God. Not about coming, experience God. Know the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him, who finds safety, who finds their hope in the Lord. Hope in God, trust in God, not just trying to take over and trying to make it happen ourselves, which is what we tend to do when we move to the law. Moving back to our portion again in Galatians, for if the inheritance could come, the promise of eternal life, of reuniting with God, could come by receiving, keeping the law and commandments, then it would not be resulting, it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Again, the inheritance, eternal life, freedom from the curse of sin was given by promise. Not by you somehow performing and keeping the laws and doing all the do's and don'ts that it says in the Bible. 
That's not how you attain God's love nor his promise. If you've ever gone through a family death, you know that at the end of life, there is the splitting of an inheritance. When they split the inheritance, they don't go and have everybody explain what they did for that individual or how important they were or what works they did and why they deserve some of the inheritance. Rather, the person that passed away, whatever they wrote in their will, will determine what the inheritance is and who will receive what. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, these are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? Do we not do all these great works? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Follower of Jesus, it comes down to this. It is only one question that actually matters at the end of this life, and it has nothing to do with what you've done. It has to do with who you know and who knows you. Do you know him? Have you received the promise? So many of us have gone to church, and we know this. We've heard this a thousand times, but do we actually live that way? In his letter in ministry, Paul tried to bridge the gap between Jew and Gentile, or Hebrew and Greek. Now, as opposed to Hebrew and Greek languages and vocabulary and thought, uh, sorry, Hebrew, uh, Greek, as opposed to Hebrew, I should say, sorry, Greek vocabulary and thought introduced this concept of intellectual detachment. That meaning that you can detach logic from emotion, believing then intellect would reign supreme. Our Western culture, in our Western culture, we live in a, in a culture that has been built on this Greek principle of detached or abstract thinking. Now, I love that because I'm not a very emotional person, so I love abstract thinking. But a potential pitfall of abstract thinking is that it remains simply that, abstract, distant, simply an intellectual note, but not an adopted and integrated life principle, a philosophical theory that makes no practical impact for how we live. Christ follower, can I ask you this morning, how do you try to inherit or how do you try to attain the inheritance of God? Not the Sunday school answer you know is correct, but how do you actually do it in your life? Is it by following the law? Because our perpetual nature is to try and earn and to achieve. So I'm going to go to church because God will be upset if I don't go to church. And I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to do good things and I'm going to give money to good, good things. And I'm going to give some to go, some good works. I'm going to do kind things. I'm going to hit all the checklist of the things I'm supposed to do. This is exactly what the religions of our world do. This is karma, right? If I put good things into the world, good things will come back to me. Guys, that's not the gospel. That's not how it works. That's not what brings the inheritance. You can't earn God's love nor his gifts. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So then why do we even have the law? This is what Paul asks. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. Do you know why the law makes you recognize that you're sinful? Because that's actually its job, is to point out what sin is. The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child, till Jesus, who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, 
who is the mediator between God and the people. And now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Just to surmise quickly, the law was given so that we could be aware of what God does and does not desire from us. But the law does not itself give life. The do's and don'ts don't give you life. The law simply helps reveal how life can be most beneficially lived and productively lived. And consequently, how to avoid the things that are detrimental to vitality. Think about it this way. When you're driving your car, how many of you, when you, you, before you drove your car, you did a driver's test? Wow, I am very scared to go on the road. I'm going to try that one again. How many of you did a driver's test before you... Okay, a few more. Some of you, I'm never going in a vehicle with you. Okay, so... How many passed? Well, that's fair. Uh, So when you went through, you had to learn all the laws of the road. You had to learn what road size meant. You had to learn, you know, what you do when you drive, how to use it, what's right away, all those type of things. How to parallel park, even though no one actually remembers when they have to do it. We did all those things, right? Does that actually make you a good driver? Well, if you you don't know them, it's probably going to make you a bad one. But you can study and know all the laws of the road, but it doesn't necessarily make you a good driver. Or if I could put it another way, I love sports and you guys know that, but any sport you have has rules. So if you're going to play as a hockey player in the NHL, there are rules that they play by. I know all the rules for the NHL. Believe me, I armchair GM and yell at my screen all the time. I know the rules and how they're supposed to be called, but that doesn't mean I'm actually good at the game. I can't skate. I'm no good even if I know the rules. Simply knowing the rules doesn't mean that you can actually perform what's meant to be there. The rules are simply to help you see the most beneficial way to make it happen. But there's no life actually found in it. So then this brings the question, does the law contradict the promise? Does the law contradict grace? Is there a conflict between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not, Paul says. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by simply obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under the guard by the law. We were kept in in its protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it this way, Paul says. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now the way of faith has come. We no longer need the law as our guardian. He did not say that the law contradicts the promise, but rather what he is explaining is that it cooperates with the promise in fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. See, the law helps us to see the importance of that we are indeed sinners in need of saving. And if you don't know that, that's where you're in real trouble. The law actually is a gift to us because it shows us how far we are from God and we are in need of a Savior. But it is the promise, it is Jesus saving us from sin that offers that Savior. The law and the promise combine to bring sinners to the Savior, Jesus. I like to think of it this way. I think there's a picture on the screen of, of a bowling alley. My grandpa on my, on my dad's side was a great bowler. Even bowled the perfect game, I was told once. I was not a great bowler. I remember, especially when I was young, there's something that you hit that point as a young man 
When you're a child where it gets embarrassing, you start by doing the old between the legs, but at one point in your life, you're just like, I gotta be more buff and I gotta be, look older than doing this when I bowl. And you gotta do the old one hand because you just look cooler, right? And one of the things I always noticed when I was bowling, okay, those alleys on the side are like so embarrassing. So you threw it and you hit a gutter ball and you just feel dejected. You have to go back and all your friends are sitting there making fun of you. So then you get your next ball and what do you do? Okay, I went that way that time. So I'm going to go this way and you end up going into the other gutter. How many of you have ever done that? You course correct and you go the opposite extreme. This is sometimes what happens, and this is, this is the life of the law, is you end up, the, if it's simply the law, you're solely living trying to avoid. You're worried about going into the gutter. This is the gift of Jesus. This is the difference of New Testament Christianity, is it's like if you've ever gone to the bowling alley and they put the kitty bumpers on, and you can no longer get a, a gutter ball. It's there, you... You no longer are worried about dejectedly coming back with getting zero points. Instead, you're actually focused on the purpose of the game, which is there is a pin dead center, and you want to get all those pins down. That's what the grace of Jesus offers us. It's not that we now try to just throw it into the gutter because there's a, there's a bumper there. Instead, it allows us to be free to focus on what our purpose is. It's the pursuit of of God. It's the pursuit of Christ, and I'm heading dead center down the middle, but I know that the grace of God has me so that when I'm off course, he's going to push me back towards the middle. That's how the promise and the law mix together. Finally, this last part portion of, of our passage this morning, we are now, because of that unified children of God, through faith. Paul says this in verse 26, for you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Bible tells us if you receive Jesus, you literally are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And with that, as Paul goes on to say in verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, Slave or free, male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham now belongs to you. You are new creations, united with Christ and united because of Christ. How do we as a church unite in a world of division and fraction? Secondary things need to be put in secondary places. There is no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, oilers, flames, whatever argument you want to put. There's no longer division. You belong to Christ. You are his heir. And that needs to be where the full weight of our value, our identity, our worth is put into. You are children of Abraham which really, most importantly, means you are children of God and heirs of God's promise. They belong to you. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship, this is Paul speaking to another church who found great pride in the fact that they had Roman citizenship, which was a big deal because it meant they had a lot of privileges. He said, your citizenship isn't in Rome, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The law provides the gift of allowing us to see that we are sinners, desperately in need of saving. The promise, the gift of Jesus, offers a Savior who can free us from the clutches of sin. I ask if you stand with me as we close this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your promise. God, thank you that it's not about what we can do with our hands, what we can do with our actions and our, in our own selves. Because the truth is, is, some of us are still maybe learning this, but some of us have very much come to the realization we are unable. We can't. But thank you that there is the gift of your son, that you sent your son to pay the penalty of sin that has kept us from you. And I pray this morning, if there are some that are still experiencing that separation, God, that they don't know you. They don't know what it is to be freed from sin, to be given a life that instead of is trying to avoid the gutters, is able to actually passionately pursue you, a life of vitality. God, I, I thank you that today salvation is available for them. And if that's you this morning, if you're in person, if you're online, God's listening to you right now. He's right where you are. And he wants to come into your life. And he wants to come close to you where you can know him personally. He wants to free you from all that junk that's held you captive before. The Bible tells us that simply as much as us believing in our hearts that he is and confessing with our mouths. So for you, you could just simply say a prayer like what I'm going to say right now. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gift of your promise. Thank you for Jesus. I recognize I've messed up and I've got stuff. I know I've done wrong and I've, I've sinned. And I need your forgiveness. I need you to take the brokenness in me and I need you to make it whole. I want you to come live in me and help me live for you in every way and every day of my life. Thank you that you love me. In Jesus' name. The Bible says that he makes us whole. And some of us today just need that wholeness. So God, would you renew our vitality? Would you renew our focus? God, perhaps where we've allowed secondary things to have more weight than they ever should. The things that should be on the sidelines. Today, remind us of who you are. God, sometimes maybe we've gotten angry at you because the law has pointed out that there's junk still inside of us. Instead of recognizing that as a gift of grace that allows us to then pursue a savior who will save us from it, we've just gotten angry or bitter because that stuff captures our heart. Can you free us today? God, we don't want to be captured by that anymore. We don't want to be captured by the pornography that's kept us captive. We don't want to be captured by the, the selfishness. We don't want to be captured by the gossip. We don't want to be captured by, by the, the, the love of money and accumulation and power. God, we don't want those things to capture our heart anymore. So would you free us and forgive us and help us pursue the middle, help us pursue you and know you passionately well. Fill those who just honestly are speaking with you right now, God, with a greater sense of your presence, your power, in your love, I pray, in the name of Jesus. And if you agree, say amen. Amen.